everybody. This is Perch, and I'm I'm here again with Joe. How are you doing, Joe? Hello, I'm all right, Perch. How are you? I'm doing great. We we have the great pleasure to talk to Carl Potts, who's uh, been a, a kind of legend in this industry, touching a lot of different characters in comics. How are you today, sir? I'm doing good, thank you. I, we're I'm I've been very excited to talk to you for a number of different reasons. And I was talking to Joe uh, earlier. I think there's always uh, kind of different people have different favorites of what you've done. I'm I'm very excited to talk to you about uh, certainly Alien Legion, and and that was a comic I absolutely love. But uh, nice. but there's been a lot you've done, and so we. I wanted to just kind of ask you to start out. How, how did you come to get into comics? What, what caused you to do it? Um, like a lot of people that got into comics, I grew up reading them and, and uh, really enjoyed them. And um, I was always drawing. I don't know. I don't know if I can remember a time when I wasn't drawing, uh, even as a toddler. I had a crayon in my hand usually or something <laughs> like that. Uh, but, um, and some point in high school, it finally occurred to me that there's people who make a living doing this. Uh, but I thought, you know, they're 3,000 miles away. I was growing up in the Bay Area in California. Yeah. Um, and um, so I didn't, didn't really take it seriously. Then uh, when I went to college, the, uh, the counselor there was talking to me about, you know, what track I should take. And... I had three different things I was really interested in. One was drawing, one was uh, science, particularly uh, marine, marine uh, sciences and aquatic sciences in general, like theology, and the other was music. So he goes, oh, I see you're in the band. We'll make you a music major. So I spent the first quarter, that school did quarters instead of semesters, uh, and uh, as a music major, and um, I was in a band. It was mandatory. She lived in California to be in a band. Uh, <laughs> okay. so, uh, and um, I thought, you know, why did the, didn't this guy tell me about this commercial art track that they had? Because that looks pretty neat. I think I have a better chance of uh, making a living at that as I do as a musician. Um, so I ended up switching over to that. Um, and uh, I never lost my interest in uh, aquatic sciences and uh, to this day I, I'm always keeping aquariums, breeding fish, going fishing, uh, nice. all that stuff when I can. Um, but uh, it's I, I wonder sometimes like if, if uh, back then it was possible to clone yourself if I could have had a couple of clones and each one of us would have taken a different track and, and <laughs> see a very comic book concept there. What would have happened, yeah. It, I, I, as I said, I'm interested to kind of talk through your career and kind of how you get into things. But one other piece I wanted to throw out at the beginning, because you mentioned kind of these different interests. Um, one of the things that your name pops up out a lot is there's a, um, a lot of creators who credit you as being kind of the, the teacher, the person who uh, they credit their success for. And, and really big names. I think Jim Lee has mentioned many times that, that you were really kind of the crux of, of why he's successful or the, that, you know, get, not why he's successful, but how he got to the table. Right. Um, Art Adams has made those comments. Uh, June Brigman, Mike Magnola, just, just a number of names who credit you as being a, a mentor. Um, and, and I'm, I'm curious, how did you, how, how did that, how did you adopt to that role? As a, uh, as a, I'm, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I think it's, 
I must at some point that early on just developed um, a knack and a uh, drive to teach and be a mentor. That's a lot of what I do today. I teach at School of Visual Arts in New York, and I teach online for a number of other schools scattered around. But um, I, when I got asked to uh, join Marvel's editorial staff, um, there were a couple of artists that I knew that hadn't really got a, a shot at a big time, and now I was in a position to do that. So yeah. I gave them a shot. Uh, but on my very first day as an editor, I inherited this um, stack of unanswered, you know, submissions, art submissions that came into Marvel by the ton every day. <laughs> and um, the editor I was replacing was a friend of mine, Al Milgram, who was going freelance. And yeah. uh, so we're plowing through this stack of stuff because he, he doesn't want to leave me with the whole pile without him and I going through it. Um, and one of the first packages I open up is from Art Adams. And it was a really nice Wolverine drawing and it looked uh, looked pretty good. So I started working with Art and uh, my assistant editor was Ann Nascente and I, at some point I showed Art's work to her and she'd been talking about this crazy character idea she'd had uh, for long shot and it just uh, you know kind of took off from there and I what happened is that I remembered what I was like when I was sending in my samples, my unsolicited samples, and mm -hmm. you'd either never get a response or you'd get one ages later that had uh, a form letter attached yeah. that didn't tell you anything useful. If you're lucky, someone might have handwritten some little note before they signed it. And um, the I just felt that as an editor, I didn't want to do that to people, just leave them hanging or, or not give them any useful information. So I made a vow to myself that anybody who sent their work directly to me, not to Marvel in general, but to my office, they'd get a prompt response and uh, it would tell them something useful. And um, so it, it fortunately, it took up a lot of time, but fortunately, most art samples have the same three or four uh, general weaknesses that so I could eventually craft a paragraph for each one of those things, identify it, and then list some exercises or resources that they, they could use to get to it. Wow. And um, it's, it just kind of grew from there. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think word got around that uh, if you wanted to get a response from Marvel, send it to my office. I got more of these things than anything else. Uh, but it was a lot of work. It was like editing another book or two because uh, I, I, I tried every day before I went home to make sure I went through the, the days. submissions. Uh, and some days there were a lot of them. Yeah. Well, it, it, it paid off. I mean, obviously the, the names and there's many others, Terry Shoemaker, Steve Skoroche, Larry Stroman. I mean, a lot of people who kind of credit you as, as the person who kind of found them. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't know, it was about a year or two ago. Well, more than that now with the pandemic. But, but a couple of years ago, I remember Art Adams uh, being asked kind of what would be one of the most valuable things a comic company could do and, and saying, uh, Carl, you know, get Carl Potts back in the company. <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, find the talent. Uh, so, I mean, that, that's, that's nice. I'll have to thank him next time I see him. Yeah, just a tremendous um, portfolio of, of, of work in, in addition to all these things you've written. And I, I just find that fascinating and, and it, 
it does seem like that that may be lost today as a kind of that that back and forth. Yeah, when when I joined Marvel, there were a number of people on staff who um, were editors who also had art backgrounds, including uh, Milgram, Budiansky, Hama, Archie Goodwin. You know, his stuff was mostly cartoony, but he was an excellent visual storyteller. He'd often, with his scripts, do thumbnails for the artists. But, um, and uh, there's probably others that I'm free. Oh, well, Grunewald mostly wrote, but he also uh, drew that Hawkeye miniseries. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so. um, he, and it, it would have been, um, I think his 68th birthday yesterday as, as yep. of the recording here. Um, do you have any, um, you know, Mark Grunewald stories from, from like the office? Because everyone seems to have uh, uh, really fond memories of him that got to work with him. Well, Mark, during, you know, when he got there in the late 70s, I came on board in 83, early 83, um, and Mark had already been there for a while. I'd known him from social gatherings and so on, but I hadn't really worked with him. Uh, But until he died in 96, um, he was basically a personification of Marvel's heart and soul. Um, He lived, breathed, walk, talk, everything comics, particularly Marvel. And he loved what he was doing. And uh, he was always having fun around the office and getting other people involved. He would, you know, a lot of us working in comics are introverts by nature. So he would, at conventions, he'd like, um, because it was Mark and we all like Mark, we didn't want to disappoint him. He would corral us to do the stupidest stuff uh, <laughs> conventions, um, making fools of ourselves. Like, um, you know, these contests, he called them the Marvel Olympics, where it would be Marvel staffers uh, and creators uh, versus the fans on stage doing stupid, you know, <laughs> exercises and things. And, um, they even did uh, balloon Using sitting on using your butt to, to bust balloons and how many balloons you could bust at the same time and you know yep. he you know he would even get Tom DeFalco vice president editor in chief of Marvel sitting on balloons on a stage busting them with his butt because <laughs> we all just you know Mark's enthusiasm was infectious and uh, and we also didn't want to uh, disappoint him because he was just like so into that stuff um, he he and um, Tom had an interesting going where they would play, they'd never talk about it, but they would play practical jokes on each other and it was never mentioned. <laughs> so like, uh, you know, Tom would go out of the office for a, a weekend for a convention trip or something and he'd come back and his office would look the same. But after a while he'd notice that all the books were in the exact opposite order in the bookshelves that he left them in. <laughs> and, you know, just stuff like that. Uh, but it, it was fun. We, um, Mark, one time when I was away, uh, I had an assistant who, uh, Joanne, who three other male assistants all had crushes on. Yeah. And my, all throughout the day, I'm trying to work in my office, and one of those assistants would come in and 
be talking and visiting with her, and so she's not getting any work done. And as soon as that one left, another one would come in. I feel like another one. So it's all day long. So every once in a while, I'd look up and say, Joanne, let's get back to work. Um, and uh, that would be the hint for the assistant editors to, to take a powder, but then the other ones would come in. <laughs> you know, if, I, if I sent her to, to, you know, out of the office to make Xeroxes or something like that, then they'd go follow her there. Um, so anyhow, Joanne get back to work became sort of a catchphrase. And, um, when I was out of the office one time, Mark took this portrait of me that Brent Anderson had drawn and uh, we did a word balloon on it and wrote Joanne get back to work on it. And when I was away and Joanne was in the office, she, she, she thought she was going to get in trouble for this, but I thought it was hilarious. They papered every surface I had with these Xerox. Like, there was a glass wall on my office and all those editorial offices out into the bullpen. And that whole thing was thoroughly covered. All the interior walls, the flat files. I even had like, um, you know, they had these light fixtures that were recessed in the ceiling. You had to take apart to change the bulbs. They got in there and put them in there. <laughs> there was um, a, a pterodactyl mobile I had on, and that was wearing one of these things. Uh, and so okay. I, ended up, I ended up taking pictures of it. Uh, I had to take the ones off the front of the flat files off because I had to get some work done. Uh, but I left a, as many of the other ones up as I could for a long time. <laughs> you know, that's the kind of stuff I had. One time when Ralph Macchio was away, um, there was an editor up at DC, uh, an artist, writer, Ernie Cologne. I don't know if mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. yeah. And he kind of got infamous for writing pretty uh, volatile letter column responses. And um, uh, I guess they let him go at some point. So when Ralph was gone one weekend, they, uh, Mark and his, his crew, went in there, totally rearranged the office, took some of the furniture out, replaced it with others, and had a half-typed letter in the, uh, the, the IBM Selectric that, that Ralph had uh, that was done in the voice of Ernie Cologne writing a horrible response to some fan letter for one of Ralph's books. <laughs> so, so Ralph walks in, and the idea was that he thought he'd been replaced by Ernie Cologne. Uh, but Ralph knew Mark too well. That's uh, I, what you're describing is a, sounds like a very fun office. It, it sounds like uh, you're, you're obviously everybody's working very hard, but it also seems like uh, I don't know. There, there's a camaraderie there. Is that? Oh yeah, uh, you know, it's like anywhere else. There's some people you like more than others, and there's one or two that don't get along. Uh, sure. The vast majority of people I really enjoyed, and we we would uh, socialize as well um, out of the office. But um, Mark kind of inspired me one time, uh, not too long after um, uh, Jim Shooter was let go and Tom DeFalco came in um, for the latter part of Shooter's reign, the office had, had a very kind of depressing mood about it. It was, uh, and all of that fun stuff had gone away that had been done before. So I decided to try and bring it back. And uh, being an avid fisherman, I, I brought in my collapsible travel rod uh, into the office with a, a reel with a very thin, almost invisible monofilament. And we were on the 10th floor, and it was a strange New York office building because these windows actually opened, uh, which most of them don't. So uh, I went into Ralph Macchio's office, and we put the pole together and opened the window. And Ralph had this little uh, six-inch tall 
DC dark side figure, and it had this little prism-like thing on the top of his head. It would collect light in his eyes and glow red. Oh, nice. And so we had dark side uh, dangling out the 10th floor window down on the sidewalk. So he's kind of walking along, hopping <laughs> along next to the, the pedestrians, and they're looking at him. Every once in a while, someone would try and grab him, and we could just jerk him up up with the pole and he would like disappear because there was an awning down there. We just drag him on top of the awning and it was like, you know, where the hell did he go? <laughs> so, uh, we did, we had fun with that. And then um, some of the Marvel people that were people that were coming and going and they saw this going on and most of them thought it was great. But one of them was um, the office manager at the time who um, was very strict and wasn't really in the, uh, oh. you know, in the, the same mindset as the rest of us. So she thought what I was doing, Ralph and I were doing, was just horrible. And she went up and and uh, complained to the publisher, my cops. And most people who uh, read comics back then don't know my cops, and but he was our publisher, the real hands-on publisher, um, and uh, he wasn't much for getting his name in the, in, the, in the lights or anything. He, but he was a, a great boss, great professional. Yeah. So Mike, I didn't know Mike well at that time. I got to know him really well later. But uh, he comes down, sticks his head in Ralph's office, and I'm the one that happens to have the pole out the window at that point. Ralph's actually, <laughs> Ralph's actually taking a call and doing business. <laughs> um, and so uh, Ralph tries to throw me under the bus. Uh, uh, he, Mike opens the door and Ralph said to Tony and he kind of goes to me and he kind of shrugs and like yeah. that. So, but Hobson knew Ralph too well to, to believe that. Uh, so he goes, boys, what are you doing? Uh, so I reeled in uh, the, the pole and took it apart like that and uh, I knew Mike said something about it. He was going to go down and talk to my immediate boss, Tom DeFalco, about it, the new boss. So I expected I was going to get called down there and chewed out uh, at some point during the rest of the day. And, you know, well after I kept waiting around, it was 5 o'clock, came and went, didn't hear from Tom to come down. So somewhere 5.36, I decided to go down there. And I said, Tom, is there something you want to talk to me about? He goes, no, what? And I go, didn't Hobson come down here? And Tom goes, oh, yeah, he came in, closed the door, and in a very gruff voice said, you know what those guys are doing? Tom said, who? And he goes, Potts and Macchio. And as he started to try and recall it, he started howling with laughter. And, uh, and to me, that meant that, you know, that kind of spark that we used to have at Marvel was, was coming back, and we had the right people in charge now. And, uh, that whole atmosphere was, was returning. Yeah. Nice. You know, um, it's it's funny because um, you know I've read a lot of comics. Um, you, you know, recently going back, at where you know it started while Shooter was there, and then you know kept going. You know, the run would keep going, like Grunwald on, on Cap, and you can almost see over the course of like a, a, a few months, like like Kieran Dwyer's like art on, on that book. It seems like it got more dynamic. Like there was like the, the editorial directives must've been uh, changing and, and all of that on, on how the art could 
come across in the stories. Um, did you notice things like that happening in, in the transition? Um, I think you're giving too much credit for us being organized in some, <laughs> some uh, you know, strategic way. Um, a lot of it was flying by the seat of your pants. Sure. Um, gotcha. But there were things that started happening, like when uh, the first Secret Wars um, came along and was very, very successful. And that required doing all of these crossovers, which was a huge organizational headache. Um, and so, of course, that had to be repeated and more crossovers started happening and that sort of thing. So, um, you know, we all worked to, to do those as best as we could, but there were times when it just became, you know, you're trying to do certain arcs on your own books and now you're told you've got to slip in this, that, or the other thing that to coordinate with some other stuff. And it was, uh, it was a little frustrating and the scheduling was weird too. It's like, I, I worked real hard to keep my books on the idealized production schedule. That way, if, um, you know, there was no chance they would miss shipping. Uh, and if something did go wrong, like one of the creators on the book um, had an illness or a death in the family or something, there's something always going on somewhere. If you got five people on a book, at some point someone's going to have problems. So, uh, but that gave me some wiggle room to try and uh, jiggle the schedule to still keep them going. Or, or if I had to replace somebody for a while, I could find the best person possible and give them enough time to do a good job as opposed to, you know, draw me 22 pages in four days um, kind of thing. So, uh, but that's why I ran my office in that first Secret Wars. No, it was, maybe it was the second one. Um, they all run together now. <laughs> but, yeah. um, With current events too, as it turns but out. But I was editing the Hulk and I already had an issue totally done in the drawer, ready to go to the printer. And I was told, hold on, you have to do a Secret Wars crossover. You got to take out a few pages and add a few pages that have this going on. And it was like, you know, and because Secret Wars was running so late, it screwed up everybody else's schedules. Mm. So in that regard, you know, Hopefully, not too much of that showed to the fan base out there, but internally it caused a, a lot of tension and problems. Yeah. So you went through the transition of, of working with Shooter. You just mentioned working for DeFalco. Um, I, was, you kind of, I was hired by Shooter, yeah. yeah you, you hinted at it already, but uh, so there was a, you, you did, of course, notice a very distinct style change between the two. Yeah, but, you know, Shooter, to me, Shooter, uh, you know, I, when I started working there, um, I'd heard stories from a number of people that he could be very difficult and so on, but I'd always gotten along with him. I'd known him from, uh, you know, the social uh, gatherings of the, the comics community. Um, and I've, I'd always gotten along with him. Um, and I'd had no plans whatsoever to be an editor. I was fine being an artist and a writer. Uh, uh, but he called me up out of the blue one day and, and said, uh, you know, Milgram is uh, going to go freelance, and I don't think any of my current crop of assistant editors are ready to promote yet. Would you be interested? And 
So I started thinking about it, and I decided to give it a shot. And, um, you know, I heard the stories of him being difficult at times, but initially I had no, no issues at all with them. I could have really good conversations with them, even about things we disagreed on. And so, uh, but over time, uh, it seemed like um, his attitude changed. He, uh, he used to brag that he'd put together the best editorial team in the history of comics. And then later on, uh, he seemed to feel all of us were uh, clueless bozos that needed to be led by the hand. And uh, I, I don't know what flipped that switch, uh, but that's how he started uh, acting. And it was um, extremely difficult to work with them. And people that, you know, didn't work uh, well with him or, um, you know, just couldn't tolerate it, either quit or he would fire them. And we lost some really good people that way. Yeah. And, uh, so it just got to be like um, very depressing around the office. It was uh, like a there was a dark thundercloud hanging overhead. And you knew at some point lightning was going to strike, but you didn't know when and you didn't know who was going to get hit. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's interesting because that seems to be, um, you, you know, based on, you know, stories that you hear with Jim doing interviews and things like that, that this was kind of like, uh, how Mort Whitesinger ran things over at DC, where he seemed to uh, chew out people um, and then go off and tell other people at gatherings, I've, I've got the best people, and mm-hmm. you know, oh, oh, you know, Jim and Carrie Bates and these guys are phenomenal, and then would proceed to turn around and chew them out and, and stuff like that. It's, it's interesting just uh, sort of correlating that. Yeah, I don't know if. Um you know, he was using that experience uh, as his role model or not. I don't know enough about that relationship between him and Wurzinger. And I don't want to, you know, project too much. Of course, yeah. But um, uh, it's just, it's it's strange that there, it went from being, you know, someone who I could really have a really nice, easygoing conversation with, even, even about stuff we didn't always agree on, to somebody that um it's just you know it's like you're walking on light bulbs you know uh yeah it 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 is um i've heard people describe it as there were two phases to that tenure of uh and i i've heard other people mention the same that it just it there's like a part one and a part two to what it was like and that transition and nobody's been able to really kind of identify what went what what happened to go from part one to part two but uh, eventually, DeFalco takes over. Yeah, and it was like a breath of fresh air. Um, Tom, Tom is the best boss I've ever had, and um, I didn't always agree with him. In fact, he did some stuff that I really didn't agree with. But mm-hmm. I knew that if we didn't agree on something, he would give me every chance to make my case, and I had an honest shot at changing his mind. Uh, if I didn't, and he decided to go in another direction. He knew that even if I didn't like it, I was a pro. I wouldn't half-ass it. I'd do whatever I could to try and make whatever he wanted to be successful. Yeah. 
to me, that's that's the ideal relationship you want to have with the, the people you work with and for. Oh, for sure. So, Definitely. so that that was fabulous. And like I said, his his boss, the uh, publisher, Mike Cops, and I, I got along with great as well. I ended up working with him uh, more closely as I I got promoted. Um, so it it was uh, it went back to you know being Marvel again. Yeah. And um, when I, I think it was, uh, you know, Tom had uh, taken the reins by the time you were doing stuff like Punisher War Journal, I believe, right? I believe I'd already started that. Yeah. 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 You know, so what was it about? Like, like, how did that come about? Were you the one who was, you know, pushing the idea of, of doing more with Punisher? Was that like a top down to you? How did that go? Not- not initially. It was it was bottom up in a way. Um, I can't remember if it was Joe Duffy who approached me first for that Punisher graphic novel, the first one, Assassin's Guild. Yeah. Whether it was um, uh, Stephen Grant and Mike Zeck who approached me with the, the miniseries idea, uh, but they were both being done simultaneously for a long time. Uh, I can't remember which one started first, but. Um, they, I remember when I got approached by uh, Grant and Zek, um, I'd always loved Zek's work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Grant, I hadn't really, I'd read some of his stuff and not a lot of it, and what I'd read hadn't really impressed me yet, but I really liked his take on the, on the character and, and the proposal. So uh, I agreed to champion it to the approvals process, and a lot of the other editors thought there's no way this is ever going to work. This guy is like uh, an anti-hero at best. Um, he isn't a mutant. He doesn't have power. He uses real-world weaponry, not not some neat, fantastic stuff. Um, but I thought there might be a market for it because of what was happening in other parts of uh, popular media. For instance, the films you had the Dirty Harry movies and the yep. Charles Bronson Death Wish movies, and and so on. Yeah. So I uh, decided to give it a go, and uh, lo and behold, it turned out to be a humongous hit. And um, so then I started uh, an ongoing monthly series, and I, I kept having all these ideas for stories for the character, but no place to put them because I had Mike Barron on the, the regular book at that point, and Barron, you know, was a fountain of ideas. He didn't need me feeding him stuff. <laughs> so, yeah, that's right. Uh, um, so... Uh, I, I, the, the the character got so popular, and at that point, there were num, you know, some characters like particularly Spider-Man that um, you had multiple titles for that single character. Yeah. So um, I, I proposed doing a Punisher War Journal. The the major difference between that and the regular Punisher book, I felt, would be that um, Baron's stories are pretty much you see the character almost totally from the outside. You don't really get to peer inside what's going on internally with them. And even like when Microsoft's son was killed, you know, all you see is him holding the body and delivering them to microchip. You don't really go into what his thoughts are. So I was going to use the actual war journal uh, captions to go more into his internal workings um, as well. And I'd never been able to draw a monthly book, or just not fast enough, but I figured um, 
if I wrote this and did the layouts for it and it was on a six-week schedule, I could probably pull that off. So it started out on a six-week schedule. But it got, yeah. to be, it got to be a hit so quickly that the sales department was demanding it go monthly. So after, after I laid out five of the first seven issues, uh, you know, Jim didn't need, need me or anybody else doing layouts for him. So I said, all right, screw it. Go monthly. I'll just write the damn thing. And uh, <laughs> I forget trying to do the layouts for it. Um, so uh, that's what happened there on that one. I mean, so yeah, but it, it kind of as you just mentioned, you wind up doing the layouts for this, and this is Jim Lee, and this would be Jim Lee's kind of breakout at Marvel. Yeah, though he'd been drawing Alpha Flight for me for about right. a year, I guess. Um, he had, he at that point uh, when he started out was going to Princeton. I think it was pre med. I'm not 100 percent sure. I think so, um, yeah. but um, he came with some samples to a New York convention. I think it was at the Roosevelt Hotel, but he was so shy about showing them, he didn't show them until after the convention was closing down. And I'd already left, but, and the only Marvel editor left there was Archie Goodwin. Uh, so he showed it to Archie, and Archie said, you show this Carl. He likes working with the new guys. Uh, so Jim ended up, I don't know if he was skipping class or not, but Monday he came up to the office and showed me his work. And um, I would give people who I thought had promise uh, a six-page tryout story that Tom DeFalco had written called Double Vision, which crams a hell of a lot of story into six pages. It was trial by fire, throwing them in the deep end of the pool to see if they could uh, pull it off with the storytelling and, and so yeah, on. Nice. And um, at one point, I had a whole stack of these things done by all these different people. Then during one of the office moves, all those pages disappeared. I wish I, I had them now. Oh, uh, man. But uh, anyhow, so uh, Jim, did, Jim did a really nice job on that. And um, fairly soon after that, I needed a, an artist on Alpha Flight. So I put him on that. And every issue, he started growing in leaps and bounds. And I didn't plan to have him on war journal um i was happy with them on alpha flight and war journal i was as a creator i couldn't edit it. so it was being edited in another office and um i didn't you know i would basically be stealing from myself <laughs> jim was on there so uh but i was talking to jim on the phone one day he was living out in california at the time and uh, they're talking about alpha flight and i mentioned to him that you know, I was going to be laying out this, this Punisher book and um, I'd been searching around for the right person to do the finishes. Um, and I wasn't fishing or anything like that. I was just telling him what I was up to. And he goes, oh, I'd be into that. And I thought, well, no fool I, you know, I'll, I'll be happy to do that. So uh, I ended up uh, finding somebody else for Alpha Flight. It, uh, it that was the time where you're right. His his style was growing dramatically from month to month. I remember he did the Alpha Flight issues. He did that um, Solo Avengers story with Mockingbird. I think there was a couple smaller things uh, that he was doing. I think he did something in what what the uh, somewhere. yeah. And a little later, he actually did an issue of um, one of the epic titles that Archie Goodwin created um, for the Dark. What was it? Uh, Shadowline. Mm-hmm. That's um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Busy guy. Yeah, no, for sure. I, I uh, but it, but you know, 
Punisher War Journal definitely was the breakout. And kind of to, again, Joe and I were talking about this as well. We're kind of curious to get your take on it. Um, is what 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 do what do you do with the Punisher today? If if like is it about every uh, Joe you're you're saying about every six months this comes up, right? Yeah, there, there's yeah there's pushback on on characters like the the Punisher uh, in a way that's not proportionate to other antiheroes. It's like. You know, people will be uh, condemning the Punisher and then they'll be like, I can't wait for the next issue of Lobo to come out. And, <laughs> it, you know, it's it's it, interesting. So it's, not, it's a weird character. I have a love-hate relationship with the character because um, yeah. my take on the character was that uh, Frank Castle uh, was traumatized and has also tremendous guilt for failing to protect his family from this mob rebel. So... Um, he is out there to track down and kill violent criminals for a couple of reasons. I, I think the conscious one is that he wants to prevent what happened to him and his family from happening to others. But I think at least semi-consciously, if not totally subconsciously, he has his own death wish. He, he could have been called the punished and, and refer to castle. He, he knows at some point he's going to be killed or maimed if he keeps up this lifestyle and he'll get what he deserves for failing to protect his family. And nothing he does, no matter how many bad guys he takes down, any of the stuff, um, brings him any joy. He doesn't like crack a beer and put his feet up and go, hey, I did great on that. Um, nothing brings him joy. Um, yeah. And he's just obsessed with onto the next, onto the next, onto the next. And that was my take on the character. And I felt that, you know, the audience, you know, would enjoy the action. They'd also enjoy a bit of the catharsis, I guess, of seeing, you know, really bad people that sometimes in real life get away with things and don't get caught or don't go to prison, uh, get their, you know, at least in, 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 you know, pictorial literature, get, get their comeuppance. but it wasn't meant to be, to me, like a, a role model or someone to be admired or anything like that. But once in a blue moon, I'd get a letter from somebody. This is back when people wrote letters. <laughs> uh, and um, it'd say, oh, I love the Punisher. I want to be just like him. I, I'd have to stop what I was doing and write them back and tell them, you're not getting it. You know, this guy is miserable. He's not happy. He usually just either gets involved with or creates ongoing cycles of violence. Um, he never solves any long-term problems. Uh, and he's miserable. Why on earth would you want to be like this? Right. Plus, in real life, you don't have the luxury of saying that no uh, innocent bystanders get hurt like you can right. in a comic. Because there's no way any of that work stuff would happen in real life without a bunch of people, bystanders, getting creamed in the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, but after I got promoted to executive editor, uh, uh, the executive editors weren't allowed to ha- to line edit books anymore. They oversaw groups of editors, oh. and so I had to give up all my the books I was line editing. And uh, the Punisher went to the to the editor who had been doing War Journal. Um, and I didn't think this editor had a feel for the character at all. Um, 
As a matter of fact, in the early issues of War Journal, I really wanted editorial input, and I got none initially from this editor, and I wanted it, so I would give my plots to Ralph Macchio to read. So Ralph Macchio would give me feedback, and he was the real story editor on those early War Journal issues. He was uncredited. Um, uh, but um, so anyhow, this editor, uh, to me, you know, there was some good stuff with the character came out of his office, but there's also a lot of stuff where they jerked the character around in ways and that I thought went against the, the vision I felt was the right vision for the character. They, you know, had him, um, it was established at some point that he like was a member of the NRA and that, um, he built a torture chamber into his warehouse, which makes no sense on multiple levels. Even, <laughs> even if he was going to torture people, which he shouldn't, why take them back to your secret hiding place to do it? And just in case something happens and goes wrong. It just makes I, I remember that. That was very weird. That would be like Batman uh, you know, building a little kind of torture chamber in the Batcave. And yeah, I, I, it was just... Uh, and. You know, and also that in his downtime, first off, the Punisher never has downtime. He's totally obsessed. But in his downtime, he goes bear hunting. Right. Oh, God. You know, to me, like, it was just, you know. <laughs> pretty old bears, though, you know. So. They didn't have a real feel for uh, what was going on and uh, with the character. And, and I think a lot of that has to do with how the character got eventually lost a you know, its popularity and just eventually dried up and disappeared for a long time. Yeah. yeah. Do you think that concept, uh, I, th I think to make the Punisher work, you have to, <laughs> it's funny, uh, maybe the society's dumbed down to some extent, but th there's some nuance to the Punisher. And I think what you're describing is kind of that, that depth to the character, the, the nuance to his mission, the fact that yeah, there's multiple layers being explored there in 2021. Does, do you think the audience, the, the industry, do you think that's, is it, is it now too late to tell that story properly? Hopefully not, but uh, what, I, I don't know, I almost feel like they should shut the character down for a while and let things go up. I mean, I, there were other things that were happening associated with the character that I just thought were horrible. There were police departments using the skull symbol. Right, I, right. I do not want my police associating themselves with a vigilante figure. right. You know, it's bad enough when some military units did it, uh, but that's not as bad as the police doing it, in my book, anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, I, I found it troubling that, you know, they would hold up as an ideal this vigilante who uh, is uh, totally obsessed and, and doesn't follow the rules and uh, goes against the law and, and so on. Why would I want my police to, you know, yeah. have that symbol representing them? It did yeah. seem like a miss on the character, and and unfortunately, that's the stuff that now is out in kind of the pop culture. So when when you see the conversations going around about the Punisher as a character, when people are debating, well, should this character be retired for good? They often point to, you know, the police using the symbol and other things, which is just taking us further and further away from that core character you were describing at the beginning. Yeah, that's why I think it might be good just to at least for five, if not more years, just to retire the character and then um, maybe try it again with that original take I had or the take I was using uh, and, or 
maybe someone else will come up with another take that will be easier to manage and control, you know, manage people's expectations and so on. Um, one of the things I should mention is that um, Art, I think Archie Goodwin doesn't get enough credit for helping popularize the character because early on in his appearances in the color comics and Spider-Man and so on, he was, you know, not really someone to be taken seriously uh, mm -hmm. uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, but Archie Goodwin wrote two stories that were in black and white magazines for Marvel, two separate magazines, but but he kind of reestablished the character there as, uh, you know, somewhat more gritty and serious and, and pseudo-realistic. Um, and I think that is what definitely informed Joe Duffy on her take because uh, she was a good friend of Archie's and worked with Archie at the Epic offices. Uh, but I also think that's what inspired Miller during his Daredevil run. Mm -hmm. yeah. And those are the things that also, I think, inspired uh Stephen Grant, uh, and so I don't think Goodwin gets enough credit for kind of revamping the character in a way that eventually is what made him popular. Yeah. Do Do you have any um any fun uh, old Archie Goodwin stories? Oh. He's someone else we lost way way too young. Yeah. Archie Goodwin was the most universally respected and liked writer editor in the business when he was alive, and. Um, I'll tell you a couple of stories about him. He, uh, my second day in New York, I, I, I fly out from New York and I, I don't um, really know anybody, but uh, I'd met Jim Starlin who had moved to the West Coast and gotten to know him a bit. And I told him I was going to move to New York and try and break in. And he asked me if I knew anybody in New York. I said, no, I just, this is naive. I, I had no idea. I'd never even moved out of, of home when I went to college. I was closing. Um, so, uh, so he goes, let me make a call. So he calls up uh, sharing an apartment out in Forest Hills, Queens, are uh, Al Milgram and Walt Simons. He calls him up and goes, uh, if this kid comes out there, can he crash there until he gets his feet under? He said, sure. And living in that same building are Howard Chaikin and Bernie Wrightson. So I go out to New York and I'm hanging out with these guys. I was just like, oh my goodness, this was, it was nuts. But then the, uh, Starlin would occasionally come back to New York to line up his next batch of work or talk with the editors about what he was planning and so on. I think he just liked coming to New York once in a while. Uh, he just didn't want to live in it. Um, so um, Understand that. He, he decided to time one of his trips out there around the same time I went out there. So my second day in New York, uh, he takes me into the Marvel offices and introduces me around, show my work to some of the editors. And um, first editor I showed my work to is Archie Goodman, who at that point was overseeing all the black and white comics. And, um, you know, I, I'd been, the year before, I'd been constantly sending out these unsolicited samples, Xeroxes of my work to, to the companies and hardly ever getting a response back or a really late one. So um, I'm, Showing Archie my portfolio, Starlin's introduced me, and he finds this piece I'd done, the science fiction piece. He goes, well, I could use this for an ad, uh, a subscription ad for the science fiction magazine. I'll buy this. Uh, it was a pencil piece, and he had Simonson ink. But while he's buying this thing from me, his uh, assistant or secretary came out with a stack of um, of submissions that were being rejected with 
the letters that have been typed up for Archie to sign. So as he's buying one piece from me, he's signing my uh, all these rejection letters. You realize he's reached mine. And he ends up handing it to me uh, from my samples out there with a big smile on his face. Uh, but he, um, at one point, uh, you know, some of the editors paid, played kind of fast and loose with the, the time they came into the office. They were all, you know, hardworking people for the most part. So like Ralph Macca and Archie often came in much later than anybody else, but they often also stayed much later. But they would get in trouble once in a while with um, the upstairs folks uh, for that. So the upstairs folks tried to do a, you know, a, a what, do, what do they call it? It's the, the stick and the, uh, the carrot. Oh, yeah, the stick. stick. Yep. Uh, so they said, uh, if you get in on time, you know, we're going to provide free bagels in the morning or the Saturday. But if you come in after 930, no bagels for you. Uh, and get in trouble. So everybody was worried about Archie because he, you know, came in pretty late. So the first day this was instituted, it was uh, the spread with the bagels and all that was pretty much in front of where Archie's office was. And Archie's <laughs> office, the doors closed, no lights on. This guy, you know, we're thinking, oh my God. And they were watching the clock as it's ticking down. And just after the deadline time comes, Archie's door opens. He's in his pajamas and he yawns. He goes, ah. Oh. He'd gotten in super early to pull that joke off. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'd love, hopefully somewhere. I, I mean, I, I, there's photos of all this stuff. I mean, the the get back some to work. Of, the some paper. of it, some some of it, but not all of it. Uh, oh. at, one, at one point, I don't know if it'll ever happen. Uh, DeFalco, myself, um, Fabian Nicieza, uh and then when they were live. Uh, Jim Galton, who was the president of the company during the good times, and Mike Hobson, we were all going to work on a book on what it was like to work at Marvel during, you know, the 80s through the, the oh, mid-90s yeah. and everything went away. Um, uh, and so we started collecting a lot of material for that, uh, but we never got around to, to doing it. Uh, that would have been great. I, I hope yeah. that would be a project to somehow get done somehow. Well, at one point I thought about maybe switching it over to a documentary because like these documentaries that have been on places like Netflix and all that seem to be pretty popular, mm -hmm. uh, but I haven't run into the right producer yet or, yeah, you know, or, um, Disney plus, you know, they've been doing stuff with Marvel and, um, and I think the person who produced or was working on it, uh, that did the Marvel one with Dan slot actually used to be an editor at Marvel, like got promoted into sort of the TV division. So there might be ways to, to do something like that. Cause that sounds like the kind of content that, that I think just enough times pass. Like there's a, there's a lot working in, in favor of something like that. Yeah. Uh, although I, if, you know, people are looking for all the dirt, uh, the idea generally was uh, to try and uh, concentrate on the, the good stuff. Yeah. To, um, uh, to show how it wasn't a total accident that the best publishing period, the most profitable publishing period, uh, and one with a lot of you know creative breakthroughs in Marvel's publishing history, happened during the periods when it had the best corporate culture. Yeah, when yeah. those changed, 
everything went in the toilet. That, but that's a story that that should be told. I mean, I I'm, I want to now uh, take some time off, and Joe and I can travel around with a microphone and <laughs> interview yeah. people if necessary. But that's that is a fascinating story because people are looking for work life balance and corporate culture and how how real creativity happens and and what you're describing kind of the fun and of just either people pulling pranks or fishing out the window or whatever it happens to be that is well we have lost that yeah and the you know now if i go up to marvel well they haven't had anything on going up there with the pandemic but uh before that if i was going to go up there and, and meet somebody uh usually it'd be to go out to lunch um i am held in the outside entry area until the person I've come to see comes and collects me, walks me back to their office, and right. then we're done, I have to be escorted out. Right. And that's it for pretty much everybody up there that isn't on staff. Um, and when I was there, if you managed to get into the editorial office somehow, you pretty much could talk to anybody you wanted. Um, and uh, it's like John Bogdanov got his start because he'd come up to see one editor and show his, uh, his samples to and the editor didn't have anything for him. So he came in to see me and I happened to be talking to Louis Simonson at the time. We were trying to figure out who to try and get to replace June Brigman on Power Pack because she was moving on to other things. And there aren't that many people in comics who draw convincing kids. Yeah, very true. Uh, so um, I'm looking, John Bogdanov comes in and asks if he can show his work. So he shows his work, and it's nice, but it's nothing I, I really need at that point. And then as I'm closing his portfolio uh, out of the side pocket, this piece of paper falls out that's got sketches of, of his neighbor's kids on it. And I go, that I can use. And Wheezy loved it, too. And that's how John got his start. But that's wow. a good thing that happened all the time up there. Um, if you were a writer or an artist or whatever, a creator at some point, um, you could hang out there, um, talk to people. Sometimes you'd end up accidentally brainstorming whole stories or series, things like that, because you have all these creative people mixing it up, which is how you come up with, with creativity. A lot of creativity is juxtaposing uh, things together in new and interesting ways. And if you have the right people brainstorming, uh, it can be a joy uh, to, to, to do work that way. So it's, there was a lot of that going on, but these days, you know, everything is very uptight and regulated. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's, it's like going into an insurance office or a... a <laughs> <laughs> it's it's uh i've been to marvel's offices a few times unfortunately i never got to see it back in the old days so the only world i know is that tiny kind of outer room and then you know when it, when it, guided yeah when it, when, when, it, when it was on park avenue at 387 park avenue south um they would do tours once a week i think it was on fridays or something i can't remember and this was another grunwald thing he decided that um he wanted to make it look like we were factory workers. So he bought us all red jumpsuits <laughs> and hard hats and with name things on, on the jumpsuits. And back then they were putting out these embroidered licensed embroidered patches of different characters. So 
some of us would t would sew those on for the characters we edited on the arm. Um, and uh, so for a while there, every Friday we had to get in these red jumpsuits and put on our hard hats and pretend that that's what our, our everyday working uniform was for the, the fans that were being shown through the office. <laughs> that's, I don't know what happened on my jumpsuit and hard hat. I wish I still had it. I'm not sure I'd fit in the jumpsuit anymore, though. Yeah. Again, I've got to find some photos of some of this stuff. Um, tell me, so you wind up your, your comics, you, you work... Um, uh, I was just kind of looking over the list here. I mean, you mentioned Alpha Flight earlier, uh, obviously Punisher War Journal. Um, but uh, you, you wind up, you edited the Hulk, you edited uh, the Defenders. Yeah, I basically inherited Al Milgram's line with the exception yeah. of um, Fanfare, which he continued to edit on a freelance basis. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, you mentioned Power Pack already, Strike Force Moratori, which is a cult classic now, for sure. Yeah, that... Um, Believe it or not, uh, when Shooter came up with the idea for the new universe, the concept was different. It was new titles that weren't associated with Marvel in any way and didn't have to be coordinated with each other. They could be in different universes. Oh. So Peter Gillis approached me with a moratorium concept, and I liked it. And um, I showed it to Brent Anderson, and he got really interested in it. And then I kept hearing about being these editorial meetings with Shooter and, and the editors working on New Universe titles, but I was never invited. So uh, it, stories started getting out, though, how difficult it was working with Shooter on the New Universe books. So one day I went down there and asked him what was happening with Moratori, because I, for all I knew, it had been canceled and no one had bothered to tell me. Um, so he goes, uh, no, we changed the new universe, so now it's all this coordinated stuff. So Moratorium will just come out as a regular Marvel book, which at that point, from all the stories of people working on the new universe stuff, we were we, we all breathed a sigh of relief. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's a, you also um, I mentioned earlier, but but what the you were you were overseeing what the as well, which is yeah, I I grew up like with uh, the original Marvel self parody book, not Brand Deck. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, I love that, and so I had uh, I proposed at a, an editorial meeting that we bring that back at least try a four issue mini series, which were all the rage at the time, um, and uh, and and see if there was a market for it. And then there was another editor said, "Oh, I was going to suggest the same thing," and so um, shooters. I guess he was playing Solomon. He goes, "Okay." Uh, Carl, you edit the first two, and the other editor edit the other two. And if it, it does well enough to keep going, whoever does the best books uh, will be the editor. <laughs> and I, I'm not particularly glib or funny. And um, the other person was more along those lines, so everybody assumed their books would be funnier. But I know I don't. I don't need to be funny. I need to know the funny people. I need to know get them to work for me. Exactly. So uh, I ended up being the long-term editor. Yeah, it's it's funny. So I think there's a fondness for the '90s, or sorry, the, the '80s, certainly in the early '90s. But part of that fondness is for the I don't know best way to put it, but comics not taking themselves too seriously. I mean, it, it is funny to say it because you did have like Frank Miller doing very serious work and a lot of you know. But at the same time, there's lightheartedness. Whether it was the Assistant Editors Month material or what the and it, and. But that dovetails with what you're telling me about the the office culture being yeah relaxed. We, we 
we were serious about what we were doing. We, we all loved it, grew up on it, and we wanted to make sure we're doing it right. But we all thought what we were doing was fun. It wasn't digging ditches. It wasn't pumping gas. It was having fun what, doing what we were doing. And, and uh, yeah. part of what we grew up with was the fact that the stuff that, uh, you know, Stan and, and Kirby and Ditko and so on did, uh, there was always that current of fun in there somewhere, even in, you know, serious storylines. Um, and it was just a continuation of that sort of thing. I, I know we're, uh, we've, we've used about all of your time, but I did want to ask you one, one more, the, the big one that, uh, actually, and, and Joe, you actually, you, you were, you were reading a comic, uh, you, you'd showed it earlier before you we went on the air, I believe. Sure. Yeah. No, the, Have um, what was that? Last of the dragons. Yeah. Ah. Which we were talking a little off air about mm -hmm. it, but, but that's kind of, uh, that was one of your, the first things you had published at Marvel, right? Uh, yeah, it was, uh, also the first, uh, property I created that got published and, um, it was, uh, published in Epic Illustrated, which was, uh, had a lot of creator owned material at the time. So I retained, uh, the ownership of, ownership of it. And, um, I showed it to my, uh, I was working at Continuity Studios, which was run by Neil Adams and Dick Giordano at the time. And, uh, one of my office mates there was Terry Austin, who was rapidly becoming the most popular anchor in the business at the time. And Terry liked the my drawings on it and volunteered to ink it, which was fabulous. So after I had like the first episode, I think, done, I took it into Archie Goodman, who was editing Epic Illustrated, and he uh, liked it and wanted to buy it. Uh, I asked him if he would script over my plot, and uh, he said, uh, nah, you know, find somebody else. So I walked outside and ran into Denny O'Neill, who I'd met a few times before, and I showed it to him. And he goes, yeah, this looks good. Uh, I'll do that. And uh, I talked to Marie Severn, who was in the bullpen, and I said, I need colors for this. Uh, would this be of interest to you? And she really liked it, and she signed on. Same thing with letterer Jim Novak. And as I mentioned earlier to you guys, I... I I was spoiled. I thought, you know, this is how projects come together this easily. And uh, it, it, nothing like that has ever come together that easily since. Yeah. But um, it's uh, it's something that uh, is near and dear to my heart. I recently uh, revised, I'd done a while ago, a, a, uh, a screenplay for it. And then I changed that into the pilot for an ongoing uh, series. And... Uh, I've tried pitching it a few times and some nibbles, but no bites yet. So we'll see if uh, we're able to get that that going. Uh, yeah, and, and a few years ago, um, what was it? Uh, Dover Press put out um, yeah. the, the collection, and it's still on Amazon. Uh, it's actually a little over 50% off on Amazon now, and they've only got 14 copies left in stock. So uh, everyone listening, uh, this better be sold out. Uh, uh, a few days after this goes up, just also uh, the, the Dover edition, unlike the original Epic uh, collection, uh, the Dover one, we added some more material in the back, and uh, it's got more info on. on it. I also talk in there about Archie Goodwin because I think a lot of today's fans have no idea who he was, and I think that's really sad. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, that's definitely a good deal. Sorry, I'm, I'm looking at it right now. Um, it's, it's it's a great price on it. I, there are now 13 left in stock. So good. Hurry up. <laughs> Um, no, I didn't. I don't have this edition. This would be great. I, I, along those lines, though, I, I was reading last night and kind of went down. Uh, I, I got buried in it, but I mean in a, in a good way. I got immersed in it. Better way to put it. Um, Alien Legion, which was absolutely one of my favorite books at the time and, and kind of remains so. Just everything from the character design to the, 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 the plot. And I, I know that there's some history. Maybe you can shine some light on, on where we're at with it now. But I know there was a, a lot of talk, at least, about uh, converting it to a movie or a show or, or some medium. And it, it feels like that would be a, just a home run today. Well, that's got a long history of being bounced around Hollywood and, um, it's still, it's still the case, but it, it's, um, it's going to be very difficult to get that in front of the cameras at this point because, um, well back, I think it was in, uh, 2000 and, six or seven or something like that. I, I optioned, uh, Alien Legion and, and my, I'd written a screenplay for that. Uh, it was the first script I ever wrote, screenplay I wrote and I optioned it to Jerry Bruckheimer, who was working with Disney at that point. <clears throat> and they proceeded to have half of Hollywood rewrite that screenplay over, um, geez, I guess 14 years or something like that. I hadn't realized how many people when I when I looked this morning to just I, I hadn't realized like you're right it it's a lot of people have taken a crack at that now. Yeah, and including um, David Benioff, who was working on Game of Thrones at the time, turned out he was a huge Alien Legion fan growing up in Brooklyn, and um, between seasons of Game of Thrones, the busiest guy in Hollywood did three rewrites, and then they fired him. Um, <laughs> uh, but as far as I can tell, there were at least seven, if not eight, rewrites done uh, total. And um, that's madness. Then, then the uh, the the deal lapsed. It had a, a time limit on it. Uh, the trouble is, is the contract also stated that if I set it up elsewhere, the deal has to include Disney being paid back for all the development costs. Oh, guess how much they racked up and development costs with all those rewrites yeah yeah that's i have heard of projects getting sunk that way yeah and so every time we've come close to making a deal like i had uh to miller attached to a couple of deals to, to direct it he's another one that says he loves alien legion and um is, was pestering me to to um to you know work uh, with me on that uh, in a very pleasant way before he'd done Deadpool and I'd seen, he'd show me the reels of his stuff was and I was blown away. I just thought, you know, why on earth isn't this guy directing feature films yet? Uh, so he finally got Deadpool out there. Uh, but mm -hmm. before that, when I would mention Tim Miller to uh, people like the folks at Ruckheimer's, they, they only felt they could, you know, entrusted to somebody who was a much more established uh, person. And I, I would have been very happy to go with him there. He he had the chops to do it. He had the enthusiasm and the knowledge. Um, but anyhow, so uh, it's it's had at one point for that it was there was a TV deal at MGM, and then uh, Bob Gale wrote the script for that, and uh, then uh, 
MGM shut down their TV division. Uh, it, it was a feature film at uh, Dimension Films for a while. Then the president that bought it left, and the new president, when these things happen, don't want to be uh, associated with their predecessor's projects, so that went away. It's going to be at uh, uh, Mainframe, which did 3D animation. They did the original reboot uh, and a bunch of stuff after that. But uh, every time we you know we get somebody interested now, uh, and they're interested, then they have to try and deal with Disney and about this uh, debt issue. And uh, Disney has not been um, flexible enough to to make it worth their while. Yeah, you, you know, though, um, going back to some of the stuff you talked about earlier with like the the Punisher. Uh, and, and your sort of clear vision uh, on the Punisher that's sort of been abandoned for a while now, like you could probably whip up a creator own, you know, a, a screenplay or something like that on on a character more in line with that. You have stuff like John Wick, which, which is hugely popular. And, and that kind of character has been uh, kind of getting more of a renaissance lately. So, like, that might be interesting to... Well, I've, thought, I've thought about writing another space property that I have in mind that would have a, you know, similar, very diverse cast of aliens and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, the people that have been champions for it, there's a, a producer, Don Murphy, who has done a lot of stuff, uh, comics related stuff too. Mm -hmm. uh, he's been a big fan for a long time. Uh, the, we pitched it recently to the, the head of uh, 20th Century, which is owned by Disney now, hoping again that um, since it was all part of the Disney family, then mm -hmm. that would deal with the, the debt issue. Yeah. And it turned out that uh, he, this is making me feel old, he too grew up reading Alien Legion and was familiar with the property and loved it. But mm -hmm. uh, his bosses at Disney weren't, uh, didn't want to go for it at this point. Yeah. I think a lot of people felt that uh, when you know, Disney bought Star Wars and, and Marvel uh, and Guardians of the Galaxy came out. That would be, you know, a big plus for Alien Legion. But it's the opposite thing that they think things like, oh, we have a, a space property or multiple space properties with a bunch of aliens in it. We don't need another one. Yeah. You know, it's, it's that kind of pseudo logic that is, uh, I think, is total BS. Yes. Yeah, so, yes. Uh, when, Doc, when I was editing Doctor Strange, Bob Gale had written a Doctor Strange script that some studio was hot to go to. This would have been like in the mid-80s, hot to go to, to, to film for. Uh, and I read it, and it was really faithful. It was very good. I think I had one comment. That was it. But then I didn't hear anything about it for a long time. And then I, I found out years later what happened is that right after that, uh, the first of the Eddie Murphy movies that bombed, he'd been like a box office golden boy for a long time, but then mm -hmm. The Golden Child came out and it bombed. And uh, the only thing that the people running the studio could figure out why that happened is that what was different about this one? Oh, there was magic in it. <laughs> so, magic, doesn't, magic doesn't sell. Let's kill the Doctor Strange project. And I, I, tell, I tell people, what would have happened if J.K. Rowling had walked in there and pitched Harry Potter? They would have told her, get out of here. Magic doesn't sell. Yeah. Well, and you weren't going to top the, uh, what was it, the 1978 made-for-TV Doctor Strange movie. So, yeah. 
Yeah, there's no way to top that. It's uh, it's if you haven't seen Alien Legion, if you're listening to this, um, there are omnibus available that you can pick up. There's that you can get your hands on these, and there really is an incredible series. Um, and you worked with uh, Larry Stroman on that. You had uh, that's where you uh, got to start. Yeah, yeah. Larry Shoemaker was there, I think. Um, yeah, uh, Frank Sirocco started out. Yes, um, and uh, uh, Chris Warner got started that way as well. And then you had the spinoff, or, or where uh, I think Chuck Dixon was writing. I think a well, not a spinoff, but a, a sequel, sort of speak, right? Yeah, we. Yeah, I mean, there was a a lot of people who who worked on that book. I didn't. I was so busy, I didn't have time to do a lot of the creative work myself. I came up with the concept, helped put together a bible. Uh, with some help from uh, Alan Zelnitz on that, who did made some nice contributions. Um, yeah. And then since then, I just oversee, I hire the people and I oversee the work and, and I often uh, come up with uh, storylines and so on. Uh, but the actual hands-on work, um, I have done not a whole lot of that for a very long time. It's just, uh, I just, there's, it's weird. Some properties that I dream up, I feel... I've got the, you know, the ultimate vision. I got to do everything. And others I feel would be better if I created a sandbox and invited people into play. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, that's, that's what Alien Legion turned out to be. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah. it's a tremendous series, but I mean, everything you've worked on is, is, is incredible. And the, the time spent at Marvel, I, uh, Carl, I just want to thank you for, for spending this time with us today and, and walking us through some, some pretty awesome memories of, of kind of yeah. the comic industry. Well, thanks. I, I had, I have a lot of fun memories of, uh, my time in the industry and, uh, uh, I, I'm not totally done yet. I'm working on a couple of graphic novels for, um, very long ones that should have been out already actually, but I, I wrote, uh, two long graphic novels based on my family's experiences in the Philippines during world war two, when they were uh, prisoners of the Japanese, uh, I've teamed up with Bill Reinhold on that, who's taking forever in a, in a day to turn out pages. But when he turns them out, they're so gorgeous. Um, uh, he's doing them in ink wash and then we, uh, scan them and turn them into sepia tones. So it has a real forties look to it. Just stunning stuff. I just hope it comes out in my lifetime. Um, (laughs) Yeah, no, that, that sounds fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and then I'm always working on screenplays here and there. Uh, still trying to get one of them in front of the cameras. We'll see. Yeah, but uh, you've done some stuff in the video game a little world. Bit. Yeah. Little bit, you know. yeah. I was a creative director at a uh, uh, Boulder, Colorado-based uh, mm-hmm. online entertainment company for a while. And they, they got involved with doing massively multiplayer 3D internet games when most people still only had 28k dial-up modems and yeah. you know it was they were they were too far ahead of their time <laughs> yeah yeah but yeah every, everyone still plays them now it's it's crazy how um, how they were definitely way ahead because that's makes mm-hmm. a lot of money now so. mmo is yeah subscription fees they, is the way to go they had um they had their own proprietary software to deal with uh latency and lag uh like their biggest game was a world war ii fight sim combat game which i loved called uh, fighter race uh, mm-hmm. and uh it you know 
if I was playing with somebody, like occasionally I'd play with people on the other side of the planet. I remember one time playing with somebody in Korea, and if there's lag, uh, they prioritize the information packets so that the most important stuff, like it's where the plane is positioned and the trajectory of the bullets. And <clears throat> so you could get like this very, you know, kind of staccato look in the, in the visuals and all that, but they, they were keeping track of who was where and who was being hit, but um, it wasn't always a smooth experience. Uh, they do chat back then and had these really bad translators for the chat. Like I remember the, uh, the Korean guy was fighting his, the chat translated into come to me, my foods, which I think was supposed to be, I'm going to eat you alive. Uh, yeah. but come to me, my foods. And I keep hoping I'll find a place somewhere to use that phrase. Oh yeah. That'd be, that'd be great. <laughs> that reminds me of the, uh, the, uh, late eighties, uh, X-Men arcade game with the horrible translations where uh, Pyro will burn you to toast and welcome to die and all that stuff. It's great. <laughs> welcome to die, a classic comic line. Yeah, I love that line so much. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, Carl, thank you again very much for, for chatting with us for last hour. And I hope we can, uh, we, you know, there's links in the description for uh, where you can buy uh, Carl's work on Amazon and check some of these things out. And yeah, thank you very much. And I hope we can catch up with you again real soon. Yeah, that's good. Thanks a lot, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so Thank much. You. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. You too.